Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. On the show today is Gabes Torres. She is a researcher, speaker, theologian, singer-songwriter, and psychotherapist in training. Her life's work is to show how there's nothing post about post-colonialism and that the impact of historical and oppressive conquest continue to manifest in the ideologies, cultures, languages, literature, human behaviors, inter- and intrapersonal relationships, and spiritual practices we have today. Welcome to the show. Yay. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I'm so excited to have you. We've been trying to set this up for a while now. So tell me about you. Tell me about um, who you are and what has brought you to where you are today. Oh, thank you. I really love that question as opposed to asking what you do, like who are you, which I think has uh, more of an influence as to why I do what I do. But um, for starters, I would identify myself as a migrant woman of color, um, but more specifically, a first generation Filipina. I'm born and raised in the Philippines until I was about 19 years old. And I I guess like, I think now is a good time to like say that English is not my first language. So when it comes to podcast platforms and speaking engagement opportunities, there's some uh, nervousness around it. Um, I'm proud of who I am and I'm proud of my family background, my ancestry and uh, our story collectively and me as an individual. I moved to Chicago to study theology, and I'm very passionate about learning about spirituality, about the church, but more specifically how the Western church has created such a huge impact in the Filipino church and in the Filipino culture in general. And maybe as we um, keep talking about the work that I do, we'd see the the connections between racial trauma, post-colonialism, and spirituality and how Western Christianity has been weaponized in order to further conquest. I am also um, a pansexual woman. I really value intersectionality (laughs) and how it's one thing to be a woman. It's another thing to be a woman of color. It's another thing to be queer. So I value the conversations around navigating through the context of how I'm both marginalized, but but also in some ways also privileged. And I also want to say that I am an able-bodied person currently and that I'm a cisgendered. I'm a cisgendered woman. Um, and when it comes to socioeconomic status, I'm always, I'm kind of inclined to say that I'm more in the lower income context, but I feel really uncomfortable in saying that because I grew up in the Philippines and I know what poverty looks like, where um, it's not uncommon to see street kids beg for money um, and slums are basically everywhere in my neighborhood. I'm also based in Seattle currently. And so there's a large unhoused community in the city because of gentrification and so forth. And so I am more um, comfortable and pretty confident in saying that I'm in the middle class context. Uh, I'm also a singer songwriter and I love sending the message of hope and the hope to decolonize the hope of um, freedom (laughs) through poetry, through music, through art. And I guess like I also love to be in community too. And when I say community, I mean that in like a friend community and also in my community of 
I guess, like books. And I consider books and resources and content and literature and music as my companions. <laughs> and I just find it important to to not just use a lot of my time and energy on things that are, I guess, like talking about anti-racist work and um, decolonizing mental health. But I also find it important to like celebrate the things that make me me that are, are connected, but not too connected to the hard work of social justice, oh, but to refuel yeah. myself with, uh, with music, with poetry, with uh, landscapes and nature. So that's who I am. I hope I covered majority of the bases, but that's beautiful. And not to jump ahead here too much, mm -hmm. but this thing that you mentioned, you know, the importance of having an identity outside of the hard work that you do that really resonates a lot with mm -hmm. me. And that's something that Tina and I are focusing on in this year with the podcast mm -hmm. is actually having a segment on each episode where we share a joy moment. With oh, people. I love that. That is our joy. And just finding that space. And, and I'm finding that more and more and more. If I'm going to continue in the work and continue in a way that is impactful, mm -hmm. I have to care for myself. Yes. You know, it's beyond self-care even. Uh-huh. Uh you know, so it's interesting. So so that's really interesting that you bring that up because that's been yeah. something that I've been thinking about a lot mm, lately. I'm really glad that you are because um, while it is important to continue the work of social activism and to do so in such a pragmatic, sustainable way, part of my work, especially with regard to intersectional feminism and mental health is to remind my clients, remind myself that I am a human being first and foremost, and I am not a product, a commodity, a resource for the, f the furtherance of equity or anything like that. But I am a person that has needs, that needs to honor my limits and my boundaries, while also acknowledging that this task is so important and necessary and worthy. Um, so how do we cultivate a new sense of being, a new individual or collective culture that rehumanizes us while also acknowledging that there is a need to, to agitate oppressive structures and authority th that should take responsibility of, of the abuse of power? So the work of post-colonialism or the study of colonization has a lot to do with what you just mentioned from my bio earlier, that there's nothing post about post-colonialism. People often think that when we talk about colonialism, we talk about a current like oppressive regime, a conquest and all that, that had taken place like centuries ago and has no influence and no effect on us today. My argument, and a lot of post-colonial scholars and researchers have claimed that, sure, yes, let's say that colonization ended, but it's important to note that the effects and the consequences of it continue to affect us as people of color, as people of color who have a history of colonization, and also has affected those who are the colonizers, who still think that there is a standard of being, which is oftentimes white American. And so because of how that has been constant, I guess like the more constant, it's like a habit. Like you can never tell that it is a habit because it happens all the time. It's the same thing here where there's a certain ideology that has persisted over time that we do not know 
is actually wrong, that is actually very dehumanizing to uh, the racially marginalized, to those who have experienced a history of colonization. Um, and in my work, I hope to contend and to address and to demonstrate how the mentality of American exceptionalism that white supremacy is not just something that affects us in policy and in education, but also in the way that we perceive ourselves and others. What does colonization mean? Uh-huh. So I use colonization and colonialism kind of interchangeably, but... Um, from my working definition, colonialism is oppression in the forms of conquest and exploitation. Um, so it assumes that there is like this hierarchy of power and dignity among peoples and that there are people above and there are people below. And that those above assume and impose that their ways, beliefs and characteristics are the right ways of what it means to exist. So their identity, ideas, language, their God, uh, their security and well-being outrank and are um, kind of like more important than everyone else's. And so the process of colonization or colonialism um, is where colonizers invade and exploit a vulnerable people or country and steal their land, their resources, based on that assumption that because of their identity, which is white Eurocentric identity, um, it is then their destiny and their right to claim resources and to violate and exploit the bodies of the colonized. And so the theft, the violence, the invasion, the rape, the brainwashing are all, and I say this in air quotes, justified by their unconscious belief about their place in that hierarchy. So yes, it is an issue of land and resources being stolen, but it is also an issue of power and how the oppressor wants to maintain that dehumanizing hierarchy. The oppressor wants their name, their face, their standards ingrained and seen everywhere and even on everyone. And they want to be perceived as untouchable, as exceptional, as pure, or that they want you to believe that you can never defeat them. And that is something that they want to maintain. So that's kind of like the experience of the colonizers. And as for the colonized, I think it's important for me to say first that they were not passive during conquest. In fact, they resisted. But um, if they continued to do so, if they continued to resist, then, well, the colonized were actually very vulnerable um, compared to the colonizer in terms of their weaponry, in terms of how much they're in some ways like more advantaged with regard to attacking the colonized. Mm -hmm. um, so in order for my ancestors to survive, they had to subject themselves under the colonizer's rule in order for them and their families to keep living. So this survival strategy is so familiarized to the point that they were intergenerationally and unconsciously passed on as internalized assumptions about ourselves. And that in order for us to live, we have to be at the bottom. We have to serve. We have to be like our oppressor. And this is something that we think unconsciously and also consciously. Basically, the message of colonialism for us is that in order for us to survive and even to flourish, we, the colonized, must you know, stay at the bottom where our role is to serve and in some ways reflect those at the top where our natural resources and land belong to them. And that includes our bodies, our lives, that they are to be used for their benefit and safety. 
because their benefit and safety will result in our own. So that is the lie, the intergenerational lie and illusion that colonialism created and maintained. So you see that the spirit of colonialism, there is a dehumanizing nature to it that says that the oppressed, the colonized, the marginalized are only worthy or only safe when they are a commodity, a resource, and an object to be used and to be shaped by the oppressor. Um, And not just, again, like our physical belongings and inheritance, but this also means like in the reshaping and the conquering of our minds and our identities, insisting that being white or being with the white person is better or that we are more beautiful if we're white or we're more educated and more worthy and valuable. So in my work, I find it important to demonstrate how the physical structures and strategies of colonialism might not have lived on, but its spirit and its message did. Yeah. And that's another part that I would like to talk to you about because so often we're referred to as living in a post-colonial era in time. And yet we still live on in this culture and in these traditions and in these thoughts that have Mm. existed for many generations. Uh And, And so the question that I would have for you is, how do we see, like, what are some examples? How do we see colonization or colonialism manifesting still today? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, the most salient and obvious answer to me is white supremacy and white American exceptionalism being prevalent and pervasive in education systems, in the media, in language, and how our implicit biases around the quote unquote standard ways of being have not been thought of critically or challenged. So we don't take our time to pause about what are the assumptions around what is advanced versus what is primitive, what is inferior Mm -hmm. and what is superior. What are my hidden biases and prejudices and how are they projecting onto others in harmful and dismissive ways? From, I guess, like a spiritual and theological standpoint, we see the colonial spirit, I would call it, in missionary or Western missionary agencies where missionaries would go to developing countries and would think that they're doing really helpful things, but there's an imposition, an imposition of what God means and looks like, what it means to be a Christian. Um, We see in the social context, I see this in the objectification of women, particularly women of color, by over-sexualizing and exoticizing the brown, black, and native woman's body, which is, again, like showing that our bodies are a commodity or an object to be used. I see colonialism showing up in the invisibility of BIPOC folks in media and advertising and film and in art, which insists that there are standardized characteristics or aesthetics of what it means to be beautiful and what it means to be desired. I also see this in, this is more particular to me, but in the model minority myth amongst Asians or Asian Americans that our value and our sense of belonging are defined by our intelligence, our straight A's, our um, being overly behaved, basically. So There are multiple ways to see how imperialism, how empire, and how uh, white American exceptionalism shows up. It's hard now to see what is actually humanizing because of how pervasive and widespread it is. Yeah. So then the next question I would have, what are some steps that people can take toward decolonizing? Mm -hmm. I love this question because it, because I love saying that 
you know, things are not formulaic <laughs> right, and right. there's no recipe to it. And mm-hmm. in that process of saying that it's not formulaic, it kind of exposes and challenges our impulse to want to like be linear and have a manual and be correct all the time, which is also a product of, you know, the enlightenment and white Eurocentric standards of of belonging and all that. Um, I would say that it is not formulaic and that that it is contextual and the effort to decolonize um, in your own context, in your own particularity, in your own identity is obviously like dependent on who you are and more importantly, how you are perceived by the world. So um, for those who I suppose like who would um, identify as more privileged um, in a social and systemic regard, I would say, and I know that this podcast platform has like offered so many steps and so many ways and a vision of what it means to do your own work and to take ownership of your privilege and leverage it. And to also be mindful of this white savior complex by keeping yourself accountable to a community. And I also want to emphasize that decolonization is a collective and individual endeavor. And One thing too, this is inspired by my friend, um, Chris Hewitts. He's the writer of The Sacred Enneagram, but he, we talk about how it is important to pay attention to the quality or the poverty of your friendships or of your community, because, well, we are social creatures um, that are influenced by the energy and the beliefs of those around us. I was just watching Jojo Rabbit yesterday and how this little boy was just so, he desired belonging and he desired to be a part of a group to have a meaningful life. And not knowing that his surroundings were disguising hatred or hate with camaraderie and loyalty. So I would say that be critical about your friendships and your social environments and what has been normalized or taught as good or bad. I would also say in a practical sense, start listening to decentered voices. Listen to the land that is also oppressed. Listen to BIPOC, QPOC folks, not to get them to educate you. Listening to someone is different from being being educated or instructed by them. Listen to their stories in their own terms, in their own pace, in their own time, and maybe sometimes even in their own language. A lot of marginalized folks have been working so hard to, you know, learn the English language that maybe it's time to to like share the work of understanding each other with that regard. Mm. Um, explore your own internal and bodily response when you are in the presence of difference. Um, Engage with your assumptions, your biases around what truth or what the standard means to you when, and that requires like asking yourself, when do I have a guttural urge to impose instead of explore or be more curious? How are these urges to homogenize or to fix manifesting? Are good intentions enough? Who am I to say that this is how things should be? Is there shame and contempt that are unprocessed inside of me since shame and contempt towards others is typically typically a projection of the shame and contempt towards the self. So maybe therapy is helpful, you know? Um, Mm, Yeah. Another thing too, which I would regard as like more in the pragmatic side is to know where or how the products that you consume or utilize were processed and distributed. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many websites that can um, take you to like would offer research and, and show you how resources are being funneled and being created. Like, is this coming from, you know, um, child labor, uh, you know, contexts and all that. Um, so be mindful of where you get 
your memberships from, how you get your food from, etc. Um, the other thing is to find out about the indigenous tribe that your area rightly belongs to. Mm-hmm. And then find out how to pay real rent to this tribe. For instance, here, I'm based in Seattle right now. And there's this program called Real Rent Duwamish. And so we have the opportunity to pay however amount that we want every month to the Duwamish tribe. So that's just an example. Um, other things, too, is to, <laughs> and this is coming from my quirky side, but um, taking a nap and learning the many ways to say, I need a moment, I need a second, Mm -hmm. not letting my worth be defined by white Eurocentric standards that are immersed in productivity um, and the messages of capitalism. So it's okay to rest. You are a human being. And this is the part of the rehumanizing process is by taking a breath and taking a pause and that being more than okay. Um, We've mentioned this already, like mindfulness and meditation is also helpful. It -hmm. helps reclaim your agency and your power to help you to notice to notice sensations, to notice thoughts instead of casting judgment and instead of giving into the impulse to impose or change something. Um, What is core in colonialism is really this internal fear projected um, in the attempt to rule and to dominate and to control, right? And therefore then results in discrimination and in hate. So when mindfulness is cultivated, you observe instead of giving into the fear. So you observe your relationship with this fear instead of fighting it. And the last thing in terms of decolonizing, this is inviting more of your story, is to ask yourself, what kind of ancestor do I want to be? What kind of seeds of freedom do I want to plant? Do I want to tend to and cultivate and protect so that those who come or those who will follow after me won't have to suffer or go through the struggles that I'm currently going through. They will face different struggles, but hopefully they're a little bit more freer than I am. So yeah, asking yourself that question, what kind of world do I want my descendants to relish and to enjoy in and to finally exist and to live instead of just survive? Mm. Now, what would the differences be between BIPOC who are decolonizing and white passing people who are decolonizing? Mm, BIPOC folks. Oh, I can't help but think about, you know, the people, my clients, and I think, and it kind of like moves me a little bit to think about their work. Um, And it's different for every person, right? Because their history of colon. So one thing that is important to note, too, is that Every country that has a history of colonization has a different response to it. Majority Black folks, I would encourage them to really not pathologize or demonize their rage, um, their anger. There's a reason there's it's there. And so I would say that, you, you know, like befriend your emotions, befriend your feelings, and that includes your negative ones. And I would even claim that that's also something that's being passed on, that what if you're crying the same tears as your ancestors, you know? Yeah, for BIPOC folks, I would ask them, how have your um, internalized assumptions, and and I mentioned that earlier, like how has the threat of going above, of rising above that hierarchy, like, you know, examine your responses or pay attention to your feelings when 
you're about to revolutionize, I suppose. My therapist and I would always talk about how Rosa Parks, before she started the physical revolution, she had to like negotiate within herself that she is human, that she can sit in front of that bus. And before she was able to you know, make that decision to physically get up there, she had to physically get up there internally first. I guess like asking the question, like how have we nurtured um, this internalized oppression? And what are the ways that we can be liberated from it? Um, I would always encourage my BIPOC friends and BIPOC clients to do this in the context of community, because there's something so validating when you're amongst folks who have, you know, different but also similar experiences as you. And so that really incites desire and passion in you to be free and to contend and to um, to challenge and expose the oppressive structures that live within and also outside of you. And for white or white presenting folks, I guess like I would just say again, like what I mentioned earlier about leveraging privilege and also about engaging your your bodily responses when it comes to the presence of difference, when it comes to the stranger, the so-called stranger. And for you to decolonize is to start is to start being present with yourself and to see how much that can impact the way that you engage with your outside world. Um, based on how you are present with your internal one. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think, I mean, tying this in with white supremacist patriarchy, Yeah. right? And learning about this for me has been a newer journey just yeah. over the last few years. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking about all of the people that I know, all of the women in particular I know, who are out there doing what they know to do to try to break free from this thing. Yeah. Everybody's trying to get free. They're trying to hate themselves less, love themselves more, lean into self-care, do all of these things, and yet they don't even understand what it is that's driving them into these yes. destructive patterns. Mm -hmm. And so it's this challenging thing, right? Because then you have the wellness industry, that springs up to respond to mm -hmm. it. But all the wellness industry is doing, as we see, is propagating the same patterns and doing right. the same things and being unsafe spaces for BIPOC. Like, mm -hmm. and, and just the toxicity that exists within all of this. Yeah. You know, and, and so, so I'm one of those people who I always ask, like, what's the source? Like, what is the root? Yeah. We can treat symptoms left and right. And I feel like by and large, many people are stuck in that place of just treating symptoms, right. understanding something's wrong, mm -hmm. but being unwilling to look it in the face and call it what it is, mm -hmm. being unwilling to question capitalism, yeah. being unwilling to question patriarchy, being yeah. unwilling to even acknowledge white supremacy's existence. Right. And oh my, like, wow, just, yeah. just this realization here, uh -huh. like, how, how do you even have hope in, <laughs> in, in movement in a healthy direction? Mm -hmm. So what gives you hope? Uh, well, friendships, um, conversations like this. Um, what I, where my mind went while you were saying that is that it is a deeper, a deeper liberation it's more, it's both systemic and it's definitely also um, personal. The revolution does not just um, take place outside, but it starts within. Oh, yeah. And um, I think about 
my own, um, I think about my ancestors a lot when it comes to hope. Mm-hmm. I, I trust and I know that when I get, when I feel tender, when it comes to the message of freedom and I get teary eyed thinking about it, I think about how they feel in that moment and how much they had fought and how much they have paid and how much they have persisted just so I could be here. Mm. What, uh, what gives me hope is the message of the messages and the verses of poetry. Poetry has a way of, uh, viscerally sending a message of, of grief, getting close to the wound with saying very less with imagery. Um, I find hope in my friendships with the BIPOC community, with the QPOC community. I find hope with my sessions with my clients to see how they continue to show up every week and still do the hard work of going through their trauma stories. And that is hard work. That has themes around safety, but also having a strong desire to make things right in their story. Mm-hmm. I think about my parents who I wouldn't really, cons- I only consider one of them an immigrant. Um, my dad is in San Francisco. My mom is in the Philippines. And to think about how much they had to hold a lot of trauma from um, their parents and that of their parents um, and how they've, you know, did the best that they can. Um, the idea that our freedom is more symbiotic. And what that means is that my freedom has everything to do with your freedom. Mm -hmm. And then the earth's freedom has everything to do with my own. And to think about how one freedom affects that of another also gives me hope. And this image of utopia (laughs) of a time when nobody needs to have to strive so hard in order to be who they want to be is a thing that keeps me going. So you shared a video. You talked about hospitality. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I talked a lot about how hospitality is the opposite or the antithesis of colonialism because hospitality, um, when we think about hospitality, we think a lot about the role of the host more than of the guest, where the host sets the table, opens the door, is the generous one without recognizing that the actual root word of hospitality is the um, interchangeable roles and dynamics between host and guest, that sometimes the guest also becomes the host and sometimes the host receives and becomes the guest. So there's the mutuality there. And it's already assumed that there is like a shared power between both of them. And thinking about our time today, especially with the heightened hypervigilance around immigration, migrants and immigrants, um, the Trump administration, I think the message of hospitality is needed more than ever because I feel like white America and the administration has not been hospitable to those who have labored for this country, you know, to exist, to keep existing. So I, in regard to hospitality, I think that it's more than just the physical aspects of it where you set the table at home, but that there is a wide welcoming of preferences, of choices, of faith expressions, and of particularity. And I feel like hospitality gives us an imagination, a vision that this guest might not share the same beliefs as I do, but I will welcome 
oftentimes when we think about hospitality, we think about the role of the host, that they're supposed to set the table, open the door, make the food. Um, but it's actually more of a mutual dynamic where there's giving and receiving from both ends, which assumes that there is a shared power, where there is shared agency and responsibility to care for one another, to create a safe space for both people or for more. For, um, and so that's when, and whenever I think about the history of America, I, I think about this theme around hospitality that white colonizers were and have, were and have always been guests of this land. And, and I feel like from that point when indigenous tribes, when First Nations communities were um, violated and were betrayed, I feel like the notion of a foreign other that comes to this land will kind of like do the same thing, will try to invade. And I feel like that pattern or that imagery still persists among white Americans today that, oh, because this has happened in the past, maybe that will repeat again. But then... And that's maybe if I write a book one day, I will write about that, <laughs> that yeah. it's a that it's a different it's a different framework. And we shouldn't be carrying out or making that assumption that just because there are immigrants coming in doesn't mean that they're going to be stealing your jobs or stealing your land. Right. It wasn't yours to begin with, but there's this heightened insecurity about what belongs to them and what doesn't. Yeah. So what was the video? It was a master's thesis presentation. Yeah, it was moving. I mean, Thank seriously, you. Tina and I both watched it Aww. and I was not expecting that. <laughs> and it was great because I'm sitting there in my kid's homeschool and my one son's doing his math and he looks over Aww. and he sees tears. Aww. And so he's like, oh, I can make you feel better. You know, Oh, that's so sweet. And, yeah. And he's like, what are you listening to? I'm like, something on the colonization of the world, <laughs> you know, basically. But I'm that kind of homeschool mom where I'm like, all right, boys, today's word, colonizer. Repeat after me. That has literally been it. a conversation in the house. Oh, no joke. so <laughs> funny. It's so funny because oh, yeah. I hear whenever people watch it and I would tell them, oh, it's like an academic requirement. They wouldn't expect that it had like a... Um, I guess like a personal, more on the ground take on it. Cause when you think about like an academic presentation, you think like, oh, facts, research, lecture. Um, but I intended to throw people off guard <laughs> and say yes. that, you know, this is global and this is also really personal. So listen yeah. up. It was beautiful. I Thank loved you. it. So thanks for sharing it. And we will share it with our Yay. listeners. Thank you. Um, mm -mm. do you feel like there's anything that we can? I feel like we have covered, covered a lot. lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say like, for me, the, the terminology of colonization and decolonization is something that I'm very comfortable with hearing and conversations that I've been a part of, mm -hmm. but I don't fully understand it or grasp it. So I really appreciate mm -hmm. learning more and being challenged more today. And it's so mm -hmm. in line with the journey that I've been on. Mm -hmm. And so I could just relate so much to what you were saying with regard to how to change this. I want yeah. to say like how to fight it, but fight mm -hmm. almost feels even 
Mm. You know, but, but just this idea mm -hmm. of being present of fighting against all of the systems yeah. and all of the structures and all of the ways of being yeah. that for me, I have lived it within for so long. Uh -huh. Um, mm. So I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's funny because I catch myself fixing things mm, in my mind. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I, I hear something and I'm like, okay, so how do we fix it? Right. right? Mm -hmm. I hear something. What is a takeaway? And I don't think that's a bad thing per se, oh, but mm -hmm. I do fight that. How do we fix it? Right. And really there is no fix uh -huh, to this. Uh -huh. This is one big hot mess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. within this huge hot mess, because I'm thinking of people who are listening and going, well, okay, what, how do I do this? And what do I do? And I think you gave some really practical insights into that. Mm -hmm. um, but if I were to summarize, and I'd love you to summarize after me here, but if I were to summarize, it sounds like being present mm -hmm. with people. Mm -hmm. being present with story. Yes. Allowing for people to be and just allowing yourself, allowing myself yeah. to simply be in that practice of mindfulness mm -hmm. and questioning, mm -hmm. understanding history, mm -hmm. but then also just that, that rehumanization to me is really standing out at the moment. Totally. Um, how do we do this work? How do we push forward mm -hmm. in such dysfunction mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. with hope, with courage and, and with this idea of collective liberation yeah. and humanity in mind? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that I take away here at, oh. at the end of this conversation. Thank you for being open to it, to yeah and to be willing to acknowledge that there is an impulse to intellectualize and to fix and i've always noticed that that is it is hard work but it is relatively the easier work instead of being present with your own shame and with your own mm. wounds i know this about myself that i know that my desire for justice to make things right is you know it's a worthy cause it's my calling but in a systemic and physical sense it's kind of like the easier work to organize, to strategize, to research. But really, it's just my unconscious way of trying to tend the wound that lies deeper within my core <laughs> that oh. might even be a generational thing that has been passed on. And yeah. no doubt that our places of ache also affect our places of radiance of glory like what we are good at like it makes sense why we pursue the passions that we do because it has so much to do with the places of wounding for for us mm -hmm. um it is a me trying to make things right without knowing that there is something within me that has to to be made right and to and that is the harder work like there is an existing pain a collective pain and there's also like a much greater pain too that lies within and that's when I am an advocate of therapy, but I also find it really important to acknowledge that the birth and 
development of psychoanalysis and psychology, just like other fields of study, has a history of racism, of oppression, and of using um, Black, Brown, Native bodies for experimentation without consent. And that is also an abuse of power to, like, there are strategies that abuse power to be able to take us where we are today. So I find it really important to acknowledge that. And there are so many people who are prevailing in these fields that don't take responsibility in that history. Mm, and, yeah. and I find it important to acknowledge that reality today. It is the cause of racial trauma. And now I feel like, again, we are entering into a time where psychologists and therapists of color are trying to like witness to negotiate to figure out okay these tools have helped us but then the tools that which psychoanalysis give us it will, won't be enough to dismantle it and in terms of books or resources and i know this mm -hmm. still kind of falls along the line of methodology right sure. like is there a book somebody can read uh -huh. um, or or things like that but you know i think of the work that I've been doing internally for all of these years. And it's hard to say, oh, read this book or read this book, because particularly what you said about story stands out so much. Uh -huh. yes. You know, that's what this podcast is about. It's simply about engaging in a conversation and, and allowing for people's stories to just be present, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the power that is in that. I feel like every single story I hear or mm -hmm. that I share with others and others hear, the experience of sitting at the feet of somebody's story is so powerful. And I feel like every time somebody mm -hmm. does that, something is stripped away. Something is revealed, right? Yeah. And so in oh. that, you know, so often people ask the question, well, where do I go? How do I find a book? Or how do I find a resource? Or how do I start this journey if they haven't started this journey already? Do you have sure. any recommendations or anything that comes to mind that you really felt in your work and in your journey, a book that was really impactful and powerful that was maybe somebody's story, right? Totally. Um, not necessarily the ABCs <laughs> of, of decalibration, no, right? Yeah. But, but just, do you have anything that you uh, like just love, something that's mm -hmm to you that you think mm -hmm. would be such a gift if other people could sit yeah. in its presence? I love that question. Um, I would definitely tend towards the voices of my people. Um, I would think of the writers EJR David and Kevin Nadal and Melba Magai, who talk a lot about colonialism and the Filipino identity through their fields of study in psychology, anthropology, and theology. I would think about the, the hip-hop artist Ruby Ibarra, who is an oh, incredible Filipino artist who tells her story around um, standards of beauty, the pressure of being light-skinned, of having a bridged instead of a broad nose in her music and in her poetry. I would think about Pung John hus movies. He is the director of Parasite. I love the movie Arrival. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it is a story of trauma and also of aliens and how people, yeah. particularly Americans, and also, um, you know, certain countries that have like uh, 
higher degree of advantage and power, how they respond to something that's foreign, something that's new, and how it's always like, they're always in a posture of opposition all the time because there's this fear of being controlled and of being occupied and all that. So those are like the resources that I find really, really important in my own journey. Um, I would also encourage folks to read poetry by queer women of color. There's this book called How to Cure a Ghost that is beautiful and powerful. Yeah, that's really what's present to me right now. Thank you yeah, for that. You're so welcome. One other book too, um, Blind Spot by Dr. Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald talk, talks about implicit bias. So if you want to get into the psychology of these assumed standards of existence, mm-hmm. then that would be the resource for you. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Tell us where we can find you and follow you. And if people want to bring you in to speak, tell us about what kind of speaking and events you do. So you can find me on gabestorres.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, um, and you can follow me at the handle is at gabestorres. You can also invite me to speak at your next event, your next workshop um, on gabestorres.com. There's a section there that says speaking. I do a variety of stuff. I do speaking engagements around obviously like post-colonialism. How do we decolonize spirituality, psychology, and mental health? Um, I do some work around narrative therapy as well and try to integrate the healing of racial trauma, of racial wounds with um, storytelling. You can also invite me to to music stuff as well, (laughs) as I do music and poetry every so often. But you can also find my speaking schedule there too on gabestorris.com. So hope I see you in the next event. Thank you for coming on the show. (laughs) You're so welcome. It was such a fun time, Jen. Well, Jen, I really enjoyed hearing your talk with Gabes. So thank you for that. It was very informative, and I learned so much from talking to her, so that was great. Well, with that, let's move into our joy moment for this episode. Jen, I have to tell you, I was absolutely blown away by this past Sunday when we celebrated, you and I, as well as, I believe, thousands of people um, across the nation celebrated in something that has just been started. And this was the first of its kind where Girl Trek initiated the campaign called Black Women's Appreciation Day. And their concept behind Black Women's Appreciation Day is that at the bridge between ending February, which is Black History Month, And moving into March, which is Women's History Month, that the first day of March, we honor and celebrate and recognize and appreciate Black women. So, so many people used the hashtag thank Black women, and we all sent love letters, basically, to Black women in our lives who have made an impact. And I cannot tell you how much joy it brought me to both give those love notes and send text messages and shout outs and um, just some, just overall general love to some of the black women in my life who have been so significant and important to me personally. So that was so joyful to be able to do that, but as well as to receive it. And it was really 
quite an honor and really surprising to get all of the love back that I got and all of the thanks and gratitude and acknowledgement and appreciation that I got from so many. And one of those people were from you, Jen, you wrote, you, you said so many things um, to me yeah. and it just was really, really special. So that, wow. Yeah, it was really cool for me to sit and just think about who are the women in my life? Who are the black women in my life who I appreciate and have learned so much from? And I had so many and several of them would not have been okay with me posting it on social media because <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're very shy, you know, find a picture and, and share that picture. And um, yeah, but it was really, I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed reflecting on it. I highlighted on my personal page, you and Maisha and Marcy Walker from Black Coffee with White Friends. Yeah. And just to sit and think about like how we met in our relationships. And it was just, it was a joy for me as well. So I really loved being part of that and highlighting you. And yeah, it was really cool. Well, I, I can only imagine all of the joy that was spread across um, social media, across the internet and all over the country as Black women received those notes from people. And it was such an unexpected surprise, but tremendously impactful. And I am just yeah. super grateful for that initiative. And I just want to thank uh, Vanessa and Morgan and the team over at Girl Trek for creating that opportunity and giving us a chance to just stop and reflect and reach out and thank Black women. That was incredible. Yeah. And that brings us into our spotlight for this week. It does. And we are going to spotlight Girl Trek. And if you have not heard of this movement, then I encourage you to stop what you're doing and go right now to girltrek.com or go to their Facebook page or their Instagram page. But also check out their um, the, the founders, Morgan and Vanessa, check out their TED Talk on YouTube about the creation of Girl Trek. And I'll just read really briefly their mission from their website. Girl Trek, the largest public health nonprofit for African-American women and girls in the United States. With nearly 100,000 neighborhood walkers, Girl Trek encourages women to use walking as a practical first step to inspire healthy living, families, and communities. As women organize walking teams, they mobilize community members to support monthly advocacy efforts and lead a civil rights-inspired health movement. So I learned about the Girl Trek organization and movement early 2019. I actually had an opportunity to go and be a part of one of their um, spiritual activism and renewal workshops in Atlanta. And it was so powerful to experience both uh, Morgan and um, Vanessa and listen to their heart and their vision for the work and what they do and to be in community with so many Black women who are all passionate about not only um, being active and healthy, but also being leaders of this health movement and this walking movement. Um, in our community. So I just wanted to spotlight the work of Girl Trek, 
who are the creators of the very first ever Black Women's Appreciation Day and, and all the work that they're doing. So check them out, follow them. And I would love to hopefully interview both uh, Morgan and Vanessa in the future. So if anybody has that hookup, please yeah. <laughs> reach out to us. I would love to talk to them and bring them on so that everyone can get to know more about them. That would be awesome. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to today's episode. Bye, everyone. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.